It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, I hope most of you are enjoying the day off on this holiday as we celebrate Martin Luther King. Hopefully you're in the middle of a three-day weekend, maybe even a four-day weekend. You know, I woke up this morning before going on Fox on the new revamped America's Newsroom with Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino. I used to do Dana's show every Monday, and now she's moved to mornings. I'm going to continue to do the newsroom with either Hemmer or Perino on Mondays. And there's a whole new lineup here. I'll also be appearing on Inauguration Day on the new 1 p.m. show, 1 p.m. Eastern on Fox, with John Roberts, the former White House correspondent and former CBS anchor and CNN anchor, uh, and uh, Sandra Smith, who is moving over from mornings. Anyway, little inside baseball there. Uh, I woke up and I said, wow, this is really where we are at. Uh, Donald Trump's last two full days in office, and on Wednesday, Joe Biden becomes the president of the United States. Not that this escaped your notice, not that we didn't, you know, I mean, Drudge has a thing where he every day is like 57 more hours, 102 more hours. So it's hard not to realize it. But then, you know, it was just sort of sort of a moment of reflection because whether you uh, hate Donald Trump, whether you love Donald Trump, whether you feel have mixed feelings about Trump as president, uh, he has so dominated not just the media, but the culture and Twitter, which, of course, he's no longer on. Um, and, and, you know, every single story, it seems, on the planet had to have a Trump angle, or whether we're talking about um, the National Football League and the whole anthem controversy, uh, you know, movies, whether we're talking about um, Hollywood, whether we're talking about sports, whether we're talking about crime. I mean, it's almost like Trump felt the need to weigh in on everything. And I think there's a certain addiction that took place um, that that may, may not even, we may not be able to wean from even when he's a former president. More on that in the coming days. A couple of items to start off with before we get down to serious business. Not that this isn't serious, but Parler, you know, Parler was the alternative social media site when a lot of conservatives left Twitter or other sites. They went to Parler. Then Parler got shut down by a combination of Apple, Amazon, and Google, and it became a big free speech battle. Well, Parler, after about a week of being offline, came back yesterday with a message from the CEO, John Matz. Hello, world, is this thing on? Uh, He further goes on to say, now seems like the right time to remind you all, both lovers and haters, why we started this platform. We believe privacy is paramount and free speech essential, especially on social media. We will not let civil discourse perish. But I guess it's not quite at the point where ordinary people can can post on it. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy, you know, whether you like Parler or not. I'm not on Parler. But, you know, the idea of big tech companies getting together and, you know, knocking off a smaller competitor. But then, on the other hand, Parler has done a particularly poor job of getting rid of threats. And here is some, uh, I may have read this the other day, if so forgive me if you're a regular listener, but such things as time to burn down Amazon delivery trucks. And it would be a shame if those Amazon servers were blown into the stratosphere. Uh, calling for the death of Jeff Bezos, of course, who is the founder of Amazon. Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Burn ABC Network to the ground with all their people inside. Well, all of these social media networks need to do a better job and a less selective job of cracking down on violent speech, hate speech, and that sort of thing. Uh, and Parler, if it's going to succeed in its second incarnation, and I guess it's trying to come back, um, needs to take this seriously as well. Meanwhile, Twitter, 
with another suspension aimed at another conservative, and this is a controversial conservative, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's the newly elected congresswoman from Georgia who is, uh, as anybody follow politics knows, a big adherent of QAnon, the conspiracy theory group. So she posted a tweet, uh, and her account was temporarily suspended on yesterday, uh, not permanently suspended as in the case of Donald Trump. Uh, She posted a tweet challenging the state's runoff election for the Senate, which, of course, was won by uh, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, two Democrats, which gives um, the Democratic Party and Joe Biden functional control of the Senate, even though it's a 50-50 tie. Uh, Twitter announced a 12-hour suspension saying Green's post violated the rules. Uh, What she says is the January 5th disaster in Georgia, disaster meaning the Republicans lost, lay solely in the hands of state leadership who failed voters in our state. Secretary of State, uh, that's Raffensperger, who got the famous phone call from President Trump, and Gabriel Sterling, the top election official in the state, were begged by Republicans to fix our elections. They did nothing. They are to blame, not me, not Trump, not Doug Collins. Uh, And Twitter, uh, you know, felt that that was improper because she's saying the election wasn't fair. And... um, as far as we know, all the investigations, the November election was fair in Georgia. I know Trump diehard supporters don't believe that. It was narrow win for Biden. I didn't think he was going to win Georgia. And the runoff was fair. And what happened was Donald Trump became the dominant force in the Georgia runoff. He went down there. He talked about the election was stolen. And so that kind of dampened enthusiasm for at least some Republicans to turn out. There was a pretty big turnout, but nevertheless. And Democrats just came out. Look, with the, the reason... The Democrats won those seats was because it was a nationalized election with control of the Senate at stake. All right. Meanwhile, on MSNBC this morning, Mika Brzezinski completely and totally went off on Facebook and Twitter um, and having to do with, the, you know, why did they, why did Twitter in particular wait so long until after the election, until after um, the violence on January 6th to permanently delete or suspend is the term, but you know, basically to abolish uh, Donald Trump's account. If this is some sort of last-minute suck-up to Joe Biden by Twitter and Facebook, all you've done is show how impactful everything that you've been doing so far has been in terms of spreading disinformation. You should have done this a long time ago, says Mika. Perhaps there wouldn't be people dead. Perhaps there wouldn't be people following false scientific information about the coronavirus. Perhaps there wouldn't be, uh, have been some sort of insurrection at the Capitol promulgated all over your sites. Now, I've been hugely critical of Facebook and Twitter, uh, among others, for not, you know, every six months they say, you know, we're going to do a better job. We don't like all this disinformation. We're hiring new people. And, they, and they're always sort of behind. They're always playing catch up. They pretended that they weren't real media companies. But what's fascinating is Mika then specifically called out Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, the number two at Facebook. The leadership of Facebook is pathetic, she said. Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg, you guys are pathetic. You make absolutely no reason about your actions. You could have done this a long time ago. You decided to do it now, huh? I wonder who's going to be president now. Maybe this will make him happy. No. You've just shown why you need to be shut down. You need to be shut down. Nobody needs what you have to offer. You've destroyed this country. And quite frankly, it's still happening right now. All right. Well, I don't think that Facebook and Twitter have single-handedly destroyed this country. And a lot of the blame has to lie with people who use Facebook and Twitter. By the way, nobody needs what you're selling. Well, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of people use it around the world, particularly in the case of Facebook. 
It's free. Uh, many of us are complicit because many of the neighborhoods on these social media sites have turned very toxic. But you've got to reserve some blame for the people who put up the lies, the disinformation, the hate speech, the bullying. Um, it's be impossible for any companies of these sites to get rid of everything, but they could do a much better job. And I don't think they're going to go away and I don't think they're going to be abolished. All right, story number one. It is a scary time here in Washington. Um, it almost reminds me, I actually said this on the air this morning, of the period after 9-11 because you've got 21,000 National Guard troops that have been called up that are at the Capitol to protect uh, the run-up to the inauguration and the inauguration on Wednesday. Um, should there have been a lot of National Guard troops there on January 6th when everybody knew that all kinds of Trump protesters were coming to town? The president had invited them to come to town, going to be wild, go march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. Yes, it was an absolute colossal failure on so many different levels. But right now, I mean, major parts of the District of Columbia are shut down. You can't get into downtown without any kind of special credential. You can't get near Capitol Hill uh, which I know because that's where the Fox News Washington Bureau is, without some kind of special credential. And I get it. But, you know, it's an armed camp right now. And so you have a situation like, for example, uh, I guess it was over the weekend or maybe Friday, um, CNN was the first to report that a Virginia man had been arrested near the Capitol with fake credentials and 500 rounds of ammo. Now, uh, then... The Washington Post reported it, then Fox News reported it, just about every outlet on the planet reported it. And I thought, wow, this is somebody who's trying to, you know, infiltrate what's now kind of like the green zone. It's like in Baghdad, where it was so heavily armed and heavily fortified. Well, it turns out, I mean, it was an arrest and it's fair to report it, but it turns out it was a complete overreaction. This guy who's given an interview saying, I don't want my kids to think I'm a bad guy, was working downtown as a private security guard. Uh, he had a private credential, but not a government credential. He says he got lost and ended up on E Street near the Capitol. He says he forgot he had a firearm in his truck. There was a hearing, and he was released after the hearing. And the judge asked three times the prosecutors, do you want to detain this person? And they, all, and they said no, three times, because he wasn't a threat. He's a legitimate private security guy. It just shows you how tense the atmosphere is right now. And I think sometimes the media are rushing to judgment. There were a lot of corrections and walkbacks, obviously, when more facts became known, but... You know, uh, this reminds me of when, you know, again, in that post-9-11 period, anytime there'd be a rumor, uh, you know, there's going to be attack on Christmas Day or there's going to be sports stadiums going to be attacked. You know, you had to report it, but the FBI would say it was chatter or sometimes the Bush administration would play it up. Anyway, it's a difficult time. What's really troubling to me, and here's a Washington Post story on it, uh, and others are reporting this as well, with the, uh, I guess the figure is 21,000 National Guard troops here now, Defense officials say the government is conducting screening of these National Guard troops to look if there's any insider threat. This is an extra precaution. In other words, here we are relying on these men and women of the National Guard to protect Washington in case there is violence uh, in the run-up to January 20th or on the day of the inauguration. Uh, defense officials speaking anonymously said the Army is working with the FBI to vet all service members, to make sure that, in other words, that some of them are in secret sympathizers who might do something terrible to aid any protesters or thugs or criminals or insurrectionists. Uh, Major General William Walker, commanding general of D.C. National Guards, said in an interview with Defense One that this is an extra layer of security for this deployment. But 
uh, yeah, I'm glad they're doing it. But first of all, how can they possibly vet all these, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of National Guardsmen? And secondly, do we really live in a country now where we can't even trust the National Guard? I mean, it may be true. I'm not objecting to this. I'm just saying it's really unsettling. All right, let's get to story number two. Axios, uh, with lead reporter Jonathan Swan, has been doing a series of reports. You know, Axios is known for its sort of brief takes on the news and often makes news and has some good reporters. But this has been d- being done in six parts. I think four of them have been posted so far. And it's, a, it, it's, it's kind of stuff that you would expect to see in the forthcoming Bob Woodward book. Um, lots of inside detail uh, at substantial length about um, the final months of the Trump presidency. And, and it's pretty newsworthy. I want to read some of this, share some of this with you. Um, some of this has to do with Sidney Powell. You'll recall that she is a lawyer and conspiracy theorist who for a time was working directly with Rudy Giuliani and others on the Trump legal defense team as um, the president after the election was pushing, 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 pushing all these claims of massive election fraud, uh, stolen election, fake ballots, um, voting machines that took Trump votes and turned them to Biden votes, none of which, I say again, none of which could be proven in all of these lawsuits in 50, 60, 70 different federal and state courts or by the DOJ. We'll get to that in a second. So President Trump uh, was sitting in the Oval Office late November. Call came in from Sidney Powell. Even President Trump had started to sour on him, even though he defended her publicly. Ugh, Sidney, he told his staff before he picked up. She's getting a little crazy, isn't she? She's really got to tone it down. Nobody believes this stuff. It's just too much. So Sidney Powell was too much for Donald Trump. So then he, he had some fun with her. He put the call on a speakerphone for the benefit of the aides who were sitting there. And Sidney Powell was raving about it, national security advices involving the Iranians flipping votes in battleground states. Trump pressed mute so she couldn't hear him and started to laugh. Uh, every few seconds, he pressed mute and he'd say, so what are we going to do about it, Sidney? Uh, no, that was when he was talking to Sidney Powell. And then he pressed mute and he'd say, she really is crazy, huh? But she was part of the public face of the Trump defense team. It was clear, says Axios, Trump recognized how unhinged his outside legal advisors were, but he was becoming increasingly desperate about losing to Joe Biden. And Powell and her crew were willing to keep feeding the grand lie that the election could be overturned. They were selling Trump a seductive but delusional vision, a clear and achievable path to victory. The only catch? He'd have to stop listening to his government and campaign staffs to cross the Rubicon and view them as liars, quitters, and traitors. Even Giuliani began distancing himself, telling anyone who'd listened that Powell didn't represent the president. But she did. Donald Trump kept promoting her as part of the team, even as he's privately saying she was crazy. In fact, Trump told one official, sometimes you need a little crazy. And the part that posted this morning has to do with Bill Barr, of course, uh, resigned as Attorney General in late December. Uh, This is a scene from December 1st. It's nearly a month after the election. Uh, Barr stood behind a chair in the private dining room next to the Oval Office, looming over Trump, who was sitting at the head of the table. Um, Barr told the president that his theories about a stolen election were bull, were just BS. White House Counsel Pat Cipollone and a few other aides were in the room. Uh, they knew what Barr was saying was true. The Attorney General threw in a warning that the new legal team, as I was just discussing, that Trump was betting on his future on was clownish. Trump had angrily summoned Barr 
to explain himself after seeing the AP story. This is the Associated Press story that where Bill Barr gave an interview and said that my Justice Department has found no evidence of widespread election fraud. Barr was not backing down. Three weeks later, he'd be gone. Uh, in the meantime, Barr was doing everything he could to avoid the president. There was little direct contact between the two men. Barr was dealing with other aides by design. He was said to be sick of Trump making public statements and having others do so to whip up pressure against the U.S. attorney that Barr appointed, John Durham, to uh, bring more prosecutions or put out a report on the Russia investigation, the origins of the Russia probe, before the election. Trump uh, had seen the AP story, and he was fuming. Uh, he said to Barr, why would you say such a thing? You must hate Trump, the president said. There's no other reason for it. You must hate Trump. Going third-person route, um, Barr asked for the room to be cleared so they could speak one-on-one. -on -one. He said, look, we've had a good relationship. Uh, we now disagree on key matters. And he told me he wanted to step down. And, of course, that was announced, uh, I guess, just about the day before Christmas Eve. Uh, now, clearly in stories like this, you're relying on unnamed sources. And clearly, uh, for example, if not Bill Barr personally, then the people around him provided some of this information to Axios. So, you you know, you got to discount for that a little bit, um, that this is the version most favorable to Barr standing up to the president. But the facts do back it up. He did stand up to the president. He stood up to, he had said publicly back in February, your tweets are making it impossible for me to do my job. He, um, he wouldn't talk about the Hunter Biden probe because it's a confidential Justice Department investigation. That pissed off the president. He wouldn't uh, give any indication of fighting widespread election fraud because there was none that DOJ could find. I mean, irregularities here and there, a few uh, stolen votes here and there. Sure, that happens in every election. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is what Axios is reporting. Meanwhile, ABC's Jonathan Carl reporting. Uh, this came out yesterday. Rudy had been telling people that he will be on the Trump legal team to in the Senate impeachment trial, which is coming up probably in a few days. Maybe next week. It's not clear. Now Rudy tells uh, Jonathan Carl he won't be on the Trump impeachment defense team because, quote, I gave an earlier speech as he spoke before the president at that January 6th rally that preceded the riot. I am a witness and therefore unable to participate in court or Senate chamber. And here's what Rudy said that day. He said, if we're wrong, we'll be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So let's have trial by combat. What an unfortunate phrase in light of all the people, like the people who lost their lives, including a Capitol Police officer, when security was breached, when all those people went in. And by the way, more and more arrests being made and new video coming out. The New Yorker has some really chilling but compelling Video from inside the Capitol, inside the rotunda, as all of these crazy people. I say crazy because, you know, you had the guy with the painted face and wearing that crazy hat. You had the guy with the Confederate flag. I mean, they sounded unhinged. The more these videos come out, the more they, it's almost like they didn't know what to do. And also, these people were videotaping themselves. They were putting pictures of themselves in the Capitol on Twitter or on other social media sites, thereby making it easier for law enforcement to arrest them. I mean, it would be clownish, to use Bill Barr's words, if it wasn't such a tragedy, such an awful tragedy. This one woman we just found out the other day was trampled to death by that pro-Trump mob. Not, not saying it was intentional, but God, what an awful situation to happen in the people's house, the capital of the United States of America. One more note uh, in this segment. You know the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. Uh, you know, he's on 
particularly Fox all the time with those commercials. And I used to like his commercials, and he seemed like a good guy. He was a former drug addict who started this company in Minnesota. I actually bought one of the my pillows. Well, he's gotten totally unhinged. He said in a Facebook interview with Right Side Broadcasting that he's praying that the military presence in Washington is part of Donald Trump's plan to retain power. He recounts uh, meetings of he, he had a meeting with Trump on Friday, so he got a meeting with the president, and then the president kind of handed him off to other officials in the White House. He rattled off a bunch of uh, conspiracies in this um, Facebook interview. You know, I've been looking down every hole for election fraud since November 4th. And uh, eight or nine days ago, this proof came out. 100% footprints from the machines of the machine fraud. I wanted to get it to the president. This is it. This shows Joe Biden lost. $79 million for Donald Trump. $68 million for Joe Biden. Um, anyway, uh, he's kind of disappointed. Also, he was carrying in a piece of paper. The photographers took a picture on that piece of paper into the White House meeting that Lindell was carrying, Insurrection Act and Martial Law. He said, well, these were some of the options that he wanted to share with the president and the White House. Wow. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. Okay, let's get to story number three. President Trump um, uh, is preparing to pardon or commute the sentences of more than 100 people in his final hours of office. This is according to the Washington Post. It could be announced today. It more likely be announced tomorrow. And by the way, Bill Clinton did this whole bunch of pardons, some of them absolutely indefensible on the last day in office. But, you know, Trump has already issued, as you know, a lot of controversial pardons. A lot of the people involved in the Russia probe, Roger Stone, um, as well as Paul Manafort uh, and others either had sentences commuted or just pardoned outright. Uh, this was hugely controversial. Now, apparently a lot of these pardons will not be big names or terribly controversial. But uh, apparently the Post reports that Trump met yesterday with Jared Kushner, with uh, Ivanka Trump, and other aides to review the long list of pardon requests. A lot of these people are hiring lawyers, and lawyers are making a lot of money saying they have ins uh, to the White House for these pardon requests. This is obviously the last shot. Uh, It remains unknown, says the Post, whether the president will grant clemency to Steve Bannon, former campaign chairman, who was charged last year, is completely unrelated to Trump, with uh, defrauding donors for a private fundraising uh, effort to help build the wall on the Mexican border. Um, and, and um, you know, Bannon is contesting these charges. They had a huge falling out. But lately, it looks like Bannon has kind of gotten back at least into Trump's good graces, if not into the inner circle. So I certainly wouldn't be surprised if Steve Biden ends up with a pardon. Also, the aforementioned Rudolph W. Giuliani, former mayor of New York, he hasn't been charged with anything, but he is under investigation by the Southern District of New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office there, the the district where he was U.S. Attorney. I covered him when he had that job before he ran for mayor. Uh, Two of his associates have been charged. Uh, with uh, a, on a criminal basis. So do you issue a preemptive pardon to Rudy? Does Rudy accept it? We don't know, but we'll find out very soon, and that will be one of the last you know, major um, news-making, huge meltdown, DEFCON 1 controversies of the Trump presidency. Story number four, the pandemic. You know, um, it's almost mind-boggling that we're now approaching 400,000 deaths um, in America. And this will go in the history books because 
President Trump and his administration. I don't blame them for all of this. Any president would have had a hard time dealing with this uh, dastardly and highly contagious COVID-19 virus. But I do think a lot of mistakes were made. And that will go down in the history books. 400,000 coronavirus deaths during the Trump presidency. The New York Times does one of these deep dives and says, and fortunately, it doesn't only blame Trump. A lot of blame to go around here, folks. So nearly the entire pandemic, for nearly the entire pandemic, political polarization and a rejection of science have stymied the United States' ability to control the virus. Most clear, most damaging, says the Times. You're not shocked to hear this at the federal level, where Trump once claimed the virus would disappear, clashed with his own top scientists, and, and this is the Times wording, not mine, abdicated responsibility for a pandemic that required a national effort to defeat it, handing key decisions over to states under the assumption that they would take on the fight and get the country back to business. Now, I happened to hear HHS Secretary Alex Azar on Fox this morning saying, we didn't have any uh, choice but to make the governors a big part of this because this has to be fought at the local level, and there is some truth to that. The governors and local officials who were left in charge of the crisis squandered the little momentum the country had, says the Times, as they sidelined health experts, ignored warnings from their own advisors, and in some cases, stocked their advisory committees with more with business reps than with doctors. The, the, the piece says, uh, as we found out last week, that um, President-elect Biden will have a very aggressive federal strategy to try to make pro- progress, particularly on the vaccine rollout, which has just been a complete bureaucratic mess. And I still can't believe that uh, there aren't more doses getting to more people. Um, also, he's going to push very hard. He can't mandate this except for certain sectors of government. For everybody to wear masks over the next 100 days, take it out of the realm of politics. We will manage the hell out of the operation, Biden said Friday. Our administration will leave with science and scientists. Um, so he's going to have a much more prominent federal role. But still, the action is at the state and local level. And so a lot of this is up to the governors and the mayors and the county executives. So among uh, other points, I'll just rattle them off here quickly. Uh, in the Times story, the rush to reopen last spring uh, contributed to the current severity of the outbreak. Uh, many governors moved quickly, sometimes over the objections of their advisors. Well, look, there was a real problem here. The economy couldn't stay shut down forever. Some governors did it too quickly, uh, other governors too slowly. Some maybe had uh, lockdown rules that were too onerous. But never again would the country's case average drop below 20,000 new cases a day. Now, of course, it's like 200, 250,000 a day and 3,000, 3,500, sometimes 4,000 deaths a day in the middle of this wintertime surge. Science was sidelined at every level of government, uh, says the Times. In Florida, leading scientists offered their expertise in the governor's office, but were marginalized why Governor Ron DeSantis turned to Scott Atlas, a Trump advisor who recently who resigned a while back and who was a proponent of herd immunity and some other stuff. Uh, while the president publicly downplayed the need for masks, White House officials were privately recommending that certain states with worsening outbreaks require face covering, coverings in public spaces. Records show at least 26 states ignored recommendations from the White House on masks and other health issues. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem boasted to political allies about not requiring masks, even as her state was in the midst of an outbreak that became one of the worst in the nation in the small state of South Dakota. And finally, this is a, a depressing statistic. America now makes up 4% of the world's population, but accounts for about 20%
of global deaths. While such countries as Australia, Japan, and South Korea have had far more success in keeping the death rate low in their countries. And finally, story number five. Steve Krakauer has a media newsletter called Fourth Watch, which I think is very good. I know I show a couple of times. He's worked for CNN. He's worked for Fox. Uh, he works with Megyn Kelly's podcast. Um, he has an item that I think is a great kicker here. Uh, he talks about, you know, uh, small corrections that sometimes tell you something about journalism. So um, sometimes the correction tells you a lot. So CNN had to run a correction, CNN where he used to work. A story by four different reporters, how a swift impeachment was born under siege. And it had to do with Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu of California. Who's a, he's on table, cable news a lot, including CNN. Fierce, fierce critic of Donald Trump. So uh, the story tells a scene about how Congressman Lou is talking to another congressman, and they're texting back and forth. And the story now says, grabbing a pro-bar energy bar in his office, Lou said he and his chief of staff called the top aide to Rhode Island rep David Ciceline while wandering the halls and asked if they could hunker down in Ciceline's office in the Rayburn House office building. But that is the corrected version. The correction was, here's how the story originally read, Ted Lieu grabbed a crowbar and began wandering the halls during the riot in the Capitol. As Krakauer says, Ted Lieu and his crowbar, like he's in an episode of The Walking Dead hunting zombies. So, look, as a reporter, I can relate to this. They probably heard, the reporter probably heard somebody say crowbar when it was actually probar, but suddenly you've got him with a weapon looking to whack people. Uh, but here's what Krakauer says. Somehow four different reporters and who knows how many editors saw this, and no one thought it sounded completely ridiculous. Why? Because Lou is a Democrat, half of them in D.C. probably know personally from cable news green rooms or from some party. Look, we all make mistakes. It was corrected, but I don't know the idea of it being Krogabar and not Probar. I've never had a Probar. Are they any good? Uh, is a kind of an interesting little kicker. And with that, Hope you're enjoying the day off. If you are off today, hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had a chance to catch Media Buzz. I was going to talk about it, but we're out of time. You can catch all the segments on my Twitter feed, on my Facebook page, on the show's Facebook page. Hope you'll subscribe to our little effort here on Apple iTunes or Amazon Music or Google Podcasts or on your Amazon device. We'll see you all tomorrow with more Buzz. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.